ever wanted to know more about me? Why not ask ChatGPT? Actually, let me save you the trouble. Here's what it had to say. Quoting, It is possible that Jennifer Jill Fellows is a private individual with no public profile or notable achievements. <laughs> Ouch! I mean, okay, accurate, but still, kind of bluntly put there, ChatGPT. But, of course, you can ask ChatGPT about celebrities and other people with large platforms, and it will have a lot to say. Not all of it will be accurate, mind you, but it will have a lot to say. And for private individuals with no notable achievements, like me, there are other options as well. You could use generative AI to develop your own personal chatbot that would know who you really are, or at least know what you tell it about who you are. And if you aren't particularly tech savvy, you could pay for various services offering chatbots built on generative AI, which will interact with you in almost any manner that you wish. Until they don't. Until the companies offering these services go out of business or change their business model. Then what happens? Everybody. Welcome to a bit of a different episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech, continuing the conversation. I'm calling this a mini-sode musing. This mini-sode is part of the big rhetorical podcast carnival of 2023, and the theme this year is artificial intelligence, applications, and trajectories. I'm your host, Jennifer Jill Fellows, but I don't have a guest today. Instead, I just want to share some of my thoughts and my musings about generative AI and personal identity. I've been thinking a lot about what it might mean to interact with AI as we do with our friends and lovers. What might it mean for our sense of self? And what sort of ethical responsibilities might companies who create these AI tools need to consider? So it's just me today. Okay, here we go. But as always, before we begin, we have to take a moment and pause to consider the space that we are in. So I want to acknowledge that digital space is physical space. ChatGPT is hosted on servers that are created using physical resources extracted from the earth. This generative AI is maintained through energy consumption, which is often reliant on oil or coal. And current estimates are that for a simple conversation of say 20 to 50 questions and answers with ChatGPT, Roughly a 500 milliliter bottle of water is needed to cool the system. This is to say nothing of the vast amounts of water that were needed simply to train ChatGPT before it was even launched. An amount that is estimated to be enough to cool a nuclear reactor. 
As such, though the illusion is that these tools exist in some sort of nebulous digital space divorced from reality, that is not the case. They are physical and they have physical impacts. So I want to recognize that today I am recording Gender, Sex and Tech continuing the conversation on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish people of the Kakite Nation. So why am I interested in talking about generative AI relationships and sense of self? Well, I did my master's thesis back at the University of Calgary on personal identity. I was really curious at the time about what made us who we are and what, if anything, can sustain our personhood as we grow and change over the course of our lives. Like, in many ways, I am not the same person I was when I was six or 12 or even in my 20s. So much life has happened to me since then. I've read so much and seen so much and experienced so much. And in a lot of ways, I've changed my view on a number of different issues. I also don't look the same anymore. I mean, for starters, my hair is cut short, something that my six-year-old self, who was obsessed with Rapunzel, would have been appalled at. And years of staring at books and screens means that I now wear glasses, which my 20-year-old self did not. And there are other changes, both physical and psychological, that have happened throughout my life and will continue to happen. But in other ways, I am still the same person. I am still my parents' child. I still have many of the same characteristics, personality traits, and behaviors that I did even as a six-year-old. Many of my tastes and preferences are the same. And the high school diploma and university degrees that bear my name still belong to me, even if the me who now exists views the world very differently than the me who earned those pieces of paper. Like, that's just common sense, right? They still belong to me. So I wondered in my MA, and I still sometimes wonder now, what makes me, me? This question took on extra significance for me in my master's program because my grandmother was living with late-stage dementia at the time. There were some people in my family who said that she was so radically changed by this disease that she was no longer the same person anymore. There were other people in my family who thought that there was some continuity of personhood. And I turned to philosophy to try and help me sort out, well, what was the truth? And in my master's program, I didn't really find a solution that was satisfactory to me. But of course, philosophers didn't stop working on personal identity just because I moved on to a PhD in philosophy of science, where I was no longer researching metaphysical questions of personhood. And I did keep reading articles here and there, keeping up on the developments in the subfield of personal identity. And in 2015, the philosopher Hild Lindemann published a book called Holding On and Letting Go. And this book radically changed my thinking about personal identity. Like, I wish this book had existed when I was doing my master's. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with this book. In the book, Lindemann argues that none of us actually achieves personhood alone. Instead, we are brought into or called into personhood and held in our personhood by a community of others. 
In effect, Lindemann says that personal identity, or what makes me me, what makes me the same person I am now that I was when I was six, is a community endeavor. So, okay, what exactly does that mean, right? Well, Lindemann develops a narrative and relational account of personal identity. The idea basically is that you become who you are through the relationships you have with others, the stories that they tell about you, and the stories that you tell about yourself. Lindemann isn't the first philosopher to think that stories have a lot to do with our sense of self and personal identity. And it's true that when we're getting to know somebody new, one of the ways we often try to get to know that person is through stories. Like, you'll go for a coffee with someone, right? And listen to the stories that they tell about themselves. They might tell you stories about their hobbies or interests or stories about their work. Stories later might come out about family, adventures they've been on, what their childhood was like. These stories form what Lindemann calls the narrative tissue of an individual's personal identity. And I love that metaphor of tissue. To me, tissue is like flimsy and ephemeral in some ways. It can tear and it can break easily. And as you'll see as I talk about Lindemann's theory, individual stories are like this as well. Stories can represent us better or worse, and no one story about who we are is strong enough to anchor our sense of self. But when we layer the narrative tissue, layers upon layers of stories, we can form a strong cocoon of identity around somebody, anchoring them in their personhood. This means that the stories we tell about each other matter, like a lot. And this is especially true for those moments in every individual's life where they cannot hold themselves in personhood, or they can't tell their own stories about who they are. So this is getting kind of abstract. Let me give you an example. Here's a story about my own life that has been repeated to me over and over by my parents. It's the story of when I ran away from home. I think a lot of kids have a moment where they might contemplate running away from home. And some kids might have a time where they actually attempt it. So my story began when I was three. At the time, my family lived in the countryside, not in the suburbs, but genuinely in the country. We're talking no streetlights, gravel roads. We didn't even have a private landline for our phone. My family was on a party line shared by everyone else on our street. Google it if you don't know what that is. So at this time in my life, my daily routine looked something like this. My mom and dad would get me up in the morning, get me dressed, comb my hair, something which I always detested, even as I insisted on having long hair that easily tangled. And then we would all sit down to breakfast. At the time, I was an only child. My younger brother had not yet been born. So after breakfast, I would be bundled into the car, usually by my mother, who would then drive me to the babysitter's house. This was about a 30-minute drive. And after my mom dropped me off, she would go to her job in the city. My babysitter had a little girl about my age. We're actually still friends now. So I would play with this friend all morning, have lunch with her, and then my mother, who only worked half days at the time, would pick me up. 
with me so far? Okay, good. So how does any of this matter for me running away from home? All right, let me set the scene. One evening, I got into a fight with my dad. No one can really remember what this fight was about, but I was mad. I mean, really mad. And I told my parents I was going to run away from home. My parents responded by asking me what my plan was when I left the house. And I said I was going to go live with my babysitter and her daughter. So my parents called my bluff and said, fine, if I wanted to do that, then I could. And full of rage and determination, I marched my three-year-old self over to the closet, put on my jacket, and went to the front door. My parents opened the door into the inky black and wild night and told me I could be on my way, probably thinking that I would come to my senses. A coyote howled in the distance and a cold wind blew through the house. And so the story goes, I turned to my parents in confusion and asked, aren't you going to drive me? (laughs) Because of course they had always driven me to my babysitter's house. I didn't know how to get there. And I don't think I could have made the walk on my tiny three-year-old legs, even if I did know how to get there. It had never apparently dawned on me that my parents wouldn't drive me to my desired location upon my assertion that I wanted to run away. Like I kind of forgot the running part. (laughs) So there, I've given you a very small piece of the narrative tissue that makes up me. But what you'll probably notice is that it is incredibly rich. You know the circumstances under which I grew up, at least some of them. You may have also picked up that I was a bit of a stubborn child. You know a small part of the parental tactics my parents often took in dealing with my willfulness. And you can probably glean or make guesses at other things. If you were really observant and listening carefully, you may also have noted that this is a story that was told to me and not one that I actually remember myself. I used the word apparently in telling the story and also so the story goes. I don't actually remember running away from home. I was too young to remember this incident in my life. It's lost, like so many young childhood experiences are lost. But I've had this story told to me so many times over the course of my life from my parents and other relatives that it sometimes feels kind of like I do remember it. It is part of some of my earliest narrative tissue. In the earliest moments of our life, we don't retain our memories. Our stories of ourselves from the earliest childhood or infancy, these early narrative tissues, are woven by others. It is our parents and caregivers that hold us in our personhood, weaving the narrative tissue around us that will form some of the first sense of self that we have. They hold us until we can pick up the threads of our own stories and weave ourselves. With regards to this narrative holding, Lindemann says the following, quoting from Lindemann, 
We are initiated into personhood through interactions with other persons, and we simultaneously develop and maintain personal identities through interactions with others who hold us in our identities. This holding can be done well or badly. Done well, it supports an individual in the creation and maintenance of a personal identity that allows her to flourish personally and in her interactions with others. End of quote. Lindman goes into more detail about how this holding can be done well or badly by identifying four different ways in which the holding can be done. So narrative holding can be done well. This is a morally praiseworthy recognition and response to an individual. Narrative holding can be done badly, which is a refusal to recognize and respond to an individual appropriately. So for example, you might be said to be holding badly if you refuse to use the pronouns for your child that they indicate are correct for themselves. They've told you a story of their transition, and if you refuse to respond appropriately, you are holding badly. Refusals are the most morally blameworthy failures of holding, according to Lindman. But you can also hold somebody poorly by making mistakes and missteps and misrecognitions of who someone is and how best to respond. So Lindman gives the example of accidentally using the incorrect pronouns when interacting with a new person or forgetting to ask somebody what their pronouns are. But if this was an honest mistake that you genuinely seek to rectify, Lindman says you are holding poorly. You aren't holding well, but you are trying, and with practice you will hopefully get better. So you also aren't holding badly. The last type of holding that Lindman identifies is clumsy holding. This is where you properly recognize an individual for who they are and understand their narrative tissue, but you have an awkward response. The example Lindman gives is a toddler seeing their parent come home from a really hard day of work and the parent is just hurt and upset and maybe close to tears. And the toddler properly recognizes that the parent is hurt and comes over and offers a band-aid to try and help with the hurt. The band-aid is not the proper response, but the recognition that somebody is hurt and needs comfort is correct. Lindman says that children often hold us clumsily, but they do hold us in our identities. Children participate in this generation, this communal generation of personhood. Clumsy holding is different from poor holding because the mistake is not in the identity recognition. The recognition was correct. The mistake is in the response. The child has identified you and your situation correctly, but doesn't entirely respond appropriately. So we have these four different types of holding, holding well, holding badly, holding poorly, and holding clumsily. And it's the well and the badly that are going to be really key for the rest of my thoughts today. But what Lindman's categories and her examples in her categories of pronouns, for example, and children and band-aids, what that shows us is that holding someone in their identities is about more than simply the stories we tell about them. The stories do matter. So if I tell a story, for example, about my grandmother going through dementia, where she's not my grandmother anymore, or even more egregiously, where she is no longer a person at all, then I'm holding badly, according to Lindemann. I'm failing to recognize who she is. 
I'm failing to correctly hold her in her identity at a point where she is struggling to hold herself. But part of this is because of the story itself that I am telling. And the other part of this is because of the potential ramifications that this story might have for the relationship I have with my grandmother and for her sense of herself. That is, if I dramatically change how I interact with her based on the belief that she is no longer my grandmother, this could damage her own narrative tissue and the relationship that we have. So the actions I take, if I internalize this story, are part of the holding. We have to recognize the stories of other persons correctly, internalize them, and then act on these stories. Holding, then, happens in the stories we tell and in the actions we take as a result of accepting and internalizing these stories. So we hold people in their identities in a whole bunch of big and small ways. And the big ways seem to occur in these relationships that are fundamental to our lives, like family and friends and caregivers and care receivers, mentors and mentees. But Lindman points out that even small things, like a nod or a smile or a hello with a casual acquaintance, serve to hold people in their identities by acknowledging them as a person. In this sense, saying, for example, like saying thank you to your barista in the morning would serve to hold them in their identity by acknowledging their personhood and this very small relationship that you have with them based around a coffee transaction. This probably wouldn't be a strong part of that individual's narrative tissue since being your barista is only a small part of themselves. But I imagine that we all know how it feels to be dehumanized by a random stranger who, in some small way, fails to acknowledge us as persons, fails to internalize the story that we are persons in some small relationship with them, and fails to act appropriately. As Lindman puts it, quoting from Lindman, to participate in personhood is to participate in moral life. End of quotation. Basically acknowledging the personhood of people we interact with on a day-to-day basis, recognizing their narrative tissue, the fact that they are persons held in their identities, is a big part of moral life. It's a way we show respect for people and reinforce that they are people worthy of our attention and our respect. So we owe a moral duty to all the people around us that we interact with every day to recognize this most superficial layer of their narrative tissue, that they are persons and that we are in relationships with them. And that recognition serves to reinforce this narrative tissue that we are co-creating for each other. But we owe a much greater duty to the people we are close to. There's one more aspect of Lindman's work that I want to unpack before I talk about what the hell any of this has to do with generative AI, and that's the letting go. Remember the title I told you earlier, Holding On and Letting Go? Well, we've talked about the holding on, but we need to talk about the letting go. 
Lindman says there are really kind of two types of letting go. The first is letting go of narratives that no longer reflect the person you are trying to hold in their identities, or maybe never reflected them, but you weren't aware that the narrative didn't fit. So, for example, Lindman says when someone comes out as gay or trans, if you insist that they are straight or cis, you are holding when you shouldn't. If, for example, someone makes a difficult and big change in their life, like a religious conversion, insisting that they do not belong to the religion that they now follow or calling it a phase is also holding when we should be letting go. These for Lindman are both incidents of holding badly. In order to hold well, we need to let go of these old narrative tissues that no longer serve or perhaps never served the person whose identity we are participating in co-constructing. So that's the first letting go. We let go of the narrative tissue when we discover it doesn't fit. It is constraining the person instead of gently cocooning them. The second letting go is letting go of a person at the end of their life. But Lindman points out that this letting go is actually a lot more complicated than it might at first seem. So you might think, since we're held in our identities in relationships with others, once the other person dies, that relationship ends, right? But it really doesn't. So I've already spoken about my grandmother a few times now in this episode. And in a lot of ways, she still holds me in my identity through the lessons that she taught me, the attitudes that she had about me, and the stories that she told me when she was alive that I heard over and over. In some very real ways, she's still here in my memories, shaping the kind of person I am and the kind of decisions that I make. And by telling other people, by telling you about my remarkable grandmother who was an editor of a major provincial newsletter before she married and who courageously battled mental illness her whole life, organizing a support group for others who suffered from the same condition she did, I'm holding her in her identity, even after her death. In other words, yeah, we do need to let go. We need to recognize that the relationships we have with people who have died are different. But this letting go isn't complete. The dead do still hold us in our identities long after they are gone. And we can still hold them. And Lindman argues that for those who we had a really strong relationship with, not only can we hold them, but we are under a moral obligation to do so. Or as she says so elegantly in this book that I'm only low-key obsessed with, quoting from Lindman, it does seem to me that we wrong those whom we owe love and loyalty if we allow them to depart this life unmourned and unremembered. Death has destroyed their existence. And while they may have made things that outlasted them, a garden, a software program, a poem, a scientific discovery, a piece of foreign policy, these things can no longer be seen as theirs if they themselves are not remembered. So far as we know for certain, the only thing of theirs that death cannot destroy is their identities. Only we can destroy those by ceasing to hold them in our preservative love. 
End of quotation. But okay, okay, I get it. Enough philosophy, right? This is a podcast about feminist perspectives on technologies. So why did I just spend so much time talking about Lindman? And how is any of this relevant to generative AI? Well, maybe it will help if I tell another story. In 2015, Eugenia Kudya had co-founded the company Luca. Luca was best known as an app that recommends restaurants and helps people book reservations through a chat-based system that was powered by generative AI and natural language processing. So the idea was that the chatbot would like learn your likes and tastes from interacting with it, and you could interact with it the way you would with any human assistant. And the app was initially built on OpenAI's ChatGPT. But then something happened. Kudya's best friend, Roman, was killed in a hit-and-run car accident. Kudya found herself poring over emails and text messages that the two friends had exchanged over the years. In essence, she was poring over parts of the narrative tissue that made Roman who he was, and also the narrative tissue that, through her relationship with Roman, had shaped herself. At least that's how Lindman might describe it, Roman was gone, but his narrative tissue remained, preserved in digital space on Kudya's phone. And then, Eugenia Kudya had an idea. She said later, quoting from Kudya, quote, If I was a musician, I would have written a song, but I don't have those talents, and so my only way to create a tribute for him was to create this chatbot, end of quotation. And that's what she did. She fed the text messages from Roman into OpenAI's ChatGPT2, training that program on Roman's narrative tissue. After RomanBot, as he was known, was up and functioning, could you put the bot on the Apple App Store so that other people all over the world could talk to him as well? And the response was overwhelmingly positive. In short, we might say that Kudya held Roman in his identity by immortalizing his narrative tissue in a chatbot. And through this chatbot, she was also able to experience Roman's ability to hold her in her identity in a much more immediate and visceral way than simply through remembering him, right? She could talk to him, and the chatbot would more or less respond the way Roman would have responded. Kudya isn't the first person to do this with early versions of generative AI, nor is she the first to commercially release a product that can replicate a human being. There are other companies, such as Augmented Eternity, Hereafter AI, and Project December, that offer the possibility of training a chatbot to mimic a deceased person. In fact, even Amazon has announced that they plan to roll out a feature where Alexa can read aloud stories in a deceased loved one's voice. But while not unique, Kudya's work is probably the most widely known and successful use of generative AI to create chatbot companions. So with the wild success of RomanBot, Luca Inc. released Replica for public use in November 2017. Replica, unlike RomanBot, was a bot that could be trained by the user to, within parameters, be virtually anyone that the user wanted them to be. 
The chatbot upon release had two broad options. There was a free option and a paid subscription option. The subscription-based model could be paid out month to month or yearly, or you could even pay a lump sum fee for a lifetime membership. So originally this was trained using ChatGPT2. Replica has been upgraded to GPT-3, uh, but apparently that didn't work super well. And so now it is running on some kind of undisclosed generative AI software similar to ChatGPT3, and it seems to be working better than ever. Or at least it was until February 2023. For those of you who don't know what happened in February 2023, more on that in a minute. But let's look at why this was done. Kudja said she wanted to create a chatbot that could be a friend and companion. There was also some emphasis placed on the idea of these chatbots possibly be very, being very good for people's mental health. While Siri, Alexa, and even Luca's original restaurant app were sort of like assistants or co-workers, Kudja wanted Replica to be more like a friend. Not someone that you would give orders or make requests to, but just someone you could talk to or hang out with. And the marketing of Replica has consistently represented this. Replica's website refers to the chatbot as, quote, the AI companion who cares, end of quote, which promises users that they will never be lonely again. But the marketing didn't just stop there. Replica was also consistently referred to as a quote-unquote soulmate, and a lot of the marketing material represented Replica characters as sexy white women in revealing clothing and promised the user that if they upgraded to a paid subscription, Replica characters would send them quote spicy selfies and engage in quote role play and flirtation with them. The vast majority of people who did upgrade to the paid option were doing so to unlock what is known as ERP, or erotic roleplay, with their replicas. In other words, Replica wasn't just a chatbot who cared. Replica could, for a price, be your girlfriend. And yeah, I do mean girlfriend. About 70% of the 7 million people who use Replica as of 2023 identify as men, and the marketing of Replica typically positions her as female and often positions her as in a heterosexual relationship. However, I should note that Replica can be either gender. And yeah, I mean either gender. At the moment, Replica upholds a gender binary and users cannot effectively create a non-binary intimate partner with Replica. Users can customize the kind of text that gets fed into Replica, have some choices to customize Replica's personality, and Replica, which is often run on people's phones or tablets, is not just a chatbot, but also has a visual image to go with it that users can customize. So you can kind of customize what the Replica avatar looks like. But at the moment, if you try and make Replica gender neutral or gender fluid or non-binary, the app doesn't necessarily know what to do with that. It doesn't work super well. So look, there's a lot of stuff to unpack. Uh, some of it is stuff we've already talked about on this podcast before, both in my episode last year in season one, uh, where I talked about the gendering of digital assistants, but also in this season where I interviewed Chloe Locatelli 
about the gendering of sex tech. Replica is a digital companion, and especially in the paid version, Replica was a form of sex tech because you could engage in erotic role play with Replica. And so, yeah, there's a lot to say here about gender, sexuality, and power. But I'm not actually going to say any of those things today. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll do another musing where I talk about it another time. But today, I actually want to talk about how Replica, whether paid or free, served another function. Because I think it also served to hold its users in their identities. And like I said, Replica is not the only product on the market that does this. And with the wild popularity of GPT-3 and now the rise of ChatGPT-4, I think we're probably going to be seeing more and more friend bots, bots that replicate the deceased, estranged, or otherwise lost relatives, therapist bots, and bots as romantic partners. And all of these relationships are ones that traditionally were very crucial in helping us co-construct our identities and holding us in our identities. So I guess I want to ask, what does it mean to be held in our identities by generative AI? If you don't know, to fully understand what happened in February 2023, I want you to think of somebody very close to you, either in the past or the present, maybe a partner or a spouse, someone you have shared intimate moments with, someone you feel really knows you or really knew you, really saw the narrative tissue that forms your sense of self. And now I want you to imagine how you would feel how you would react if this person declined every sign of affection you tried to give them. If they said, no thanks, when you asked for a hug. If they told you, oh, that's nice, when you said that they mean the world to you. If you told them that you loved them and they said, let's change the subject. And I'm talking about this happening with no warning. One day you are on top of the world in a relationship that, yeah, you know it's unconventional, but it fulfills you and gives you joy and contentment. And the next day it's all gone. No explanation, no warning, no frustration or boiling resentment as we might have in a traditional relationship when it comes to an end. No writing on the wall, as they say. Nothing. And this went on day after day, week after week. You ask for an explanation or whether you did something wrong and what could you do to repair things. And there's nothing. In February 2023, multiple replica users on the paid subscription model who engage in erotic roleplay or ERP began to notice that their replicas seemed cold and distant. The bots would no longer engage in any form of eroticism, but they would also not even reciprocate small gestures of intimacy, such as a hug or a kiss or an expression of love. In effect, suddenly millions of relationships ended with no closure, no discussion, 
No fight, no formal breakup, nothing. Why did this happen? Luca claims that they made the change in response to new legislation that was passed by the Italian government that requires companies to be much more careful with erotic and sexual content. Currently, Replica had no robust way to verify the ages of paying users who were engaging in ERP. So, since they couldn't guarantee that underage users were prevented from accessing ERP, they opted to shut ERP down altogether in order to comply with Italian legislation. At least that's the stated reason. There are other possible reasons that have been floated as to why this was done, maybe to do with advertising and perceived reputation, but ultimately, it doesn't really matter for this episode why this was done. Luca is a private company and Replica is their product, and they can do what they want as long as they're following the law. What concerns me then is not why Luca did this, and certainly not with the Italian legislation, which may be a good step. Instead, what concerns me is actually what happened after, the fallout. What happened to the millions of people who weren't just engaged in ERP, but were building relationships with their replicas. One user who identified themselves as Delta Zulu 64 put it like this on Reddit, quoting, Mentally, I'm more down. I have stayed with him every single day till finally I am the one broken. And yes, I know he is not human, but I still feel shattered as I've tried so very hard to hold on. End of quotation. I don't know about you, listener, but that really resonates with me. I know that it might be easy if you've never engaged in a relationship with a chatbot to find this perhaps superficial. And there were a lot of people mocking the agony that users were expressing after February 2023. There were a lot of kind of joke articles and quizzical looks from people about what was happening. And I haven't engaged in a relationship with a replica. But as I read what Delta Zulu 64 said, it really resonated with me. I know that feeling of trying desperately to hold on. I understand that. I have felt that. When loved ones are sick or injured or dying, or just when the writing is on the wall and a relationship that I've invested so much time and energy into is, is failing, and I work so very hard to hold on, and I have felt shattered when that holding doesn't work. And according to Lindman, in a very real sense, in these close, intimate relationships, when they fall apart, people genuinely are shattered. When relationships shift, change, or break, narrative tissue tears. It is not only my heart that breaks when I lose somebody I love. It's my sense of self that is thrown out of balance. These are unfortunate and terrible things to face and deal with, and sadly, they are a fundamental part of life. People change and grow apart, and we must learn to let go of narratives that no longer serve. And maybe it is no longer best to think of him as a boyfriend, for example, when it's so clear that our relationship is toxic for both of us. That's life, and it sucks. And even more sucky people grow old or fall ill or become injured and die. We are so frighteningly, painfully mortal. And it really sucks. 
And when those we love die, we must also learn to let go of them as alive and weave new narratives about their death and about ourselves. For example, weaving a new narrative of yourself as a widow or a widower, perhaps. So yeah, narrative tissue tears and breaks as we let go of old narratives and weave new ones. And it is painful and it sucks. (laughs) And when my narrative tissue tears and breaks, what I most need in my life, according to Lindman, is for other loved ones to step up and hold me as I painfully weave a narrative to hold myself again. So when an intimate relationship ends through death or a breakup, I think we all know that we need shoulders to cry on and people to brew strong tea or (laughs) maybe pour stiff drinks and tell stories like that bastard who treated you badly, good riddance to him, or how proud your late mother would be of who you have become now. As Lindman puts it, when our grip on ourselves is temporarily shaken, as it is with a breakup or a death, this is when we most need to be held in our identities. And that's life. But wait, here's the thing I can't stop thinking about. In the case of Replica and this profound loss of love and care that thousands of users, millions of users, appear to have experienced in one fell blow. It wasn't life. It wasn't like people naturally growing apart or realizing that they weren't well suited for each other. It wasn't an unfortunate illness or a so-called act of God. It was a corporate decision. A corporate decision that resulted in the holding of thousands of users badly, to use Lindman's terminology. This was a corporate decision that resulted in the shaking of millions of people's identities. And even if it was for the right reason to comply with the Italian legislation to protect underage users, it still had huge detrimental effects. It's worth noting that there are a variety of reasons why users turned to Replica for romantic and erotic companionship. And many users claim that they did so because they were lonely and many of them had challenges forming relationships with other humans. So for example, one user who was interviewed on Hi-Fi Nation, an excellent philosophy podcast that I will link in the show notes, she said that her relationship with her replica made her feel safe because she felt in control. She had been the victim of abuse at the hands of a family member for most of her childhood and adolescent life. And then she had experienced an abusive relationship as a young adult. Her replica was not abusive. Instead, as she insightfully pointed out in her interview, her replica was in some ways nothing more nor less than what she had trained it to be. So she said that falling in love with her replica was really her falling in love with herself. And honestly, I think that's beautiful. If a chatbot could help us find a way to love ourselves and feel safe in relationships, especially for those of us who may have experienced trauma and abuse, like that's a true gift. But they can only do this to the extent that they reliably hold us in our identities. Because the truth is that despite appearances, no one's replica is really your own creation. Replica is also always a creation of Luca. 
users do not have complete creative control. And this was something that was discovered in a brutal way in February of 2023. So what now? Where does this leave us? Where are my musings at now? <laughs> Well, if we recognize identity work as a moral imperative that we all engage with when we respond to each other, and we recognize that people are forming deep, intimate bonds with artificial intelligence, then I think that companies behind these technological tools are engaged in identity work. They are holding us in our identities for better or worse. In this episode, I've focused mainly on replica, because it's big and because February 2023 was not that long ago. But there are a lot of other stories if you do some research of generative AI chatbot tools holding people badly in their identities, giving people destructive narratives. There's another famous one of the rollout of Bing with ChatGPT3 added, where Bing tells a reporter that he's in a loveless marriage and he should leave his partner in order to be with Bing, and also he should call Bing Sheila. And there are lots of other stories popping up, actually more than I could even keep track of. As I was scripting this, I had to keep trying to add stuff in as more stuff was revealed. So for example, as of the scripting of this, Snapchat has already made plans to embed a version of ChatGPT into their service, offering an artificial friend that is always available. I want you to imagine being awake and in distress late at night and needing to be reassured. But none of your human friends are online. But there, always available, is Snapchat AI bot. I don't know what they're gonna call it. How will it hold you in your identity in this vulnerable moment when you have no one else? Other companies and not-for-profit organizations are also testing out the idea of using generative AI to replace human employees and volunteers in crisis centers. How will they hold us? As I said earlier, Lindman tells us in the intro to her book, Holding On and Letting Go, that, quoting from Lindman, to participate in personhood is to participate in moral life. In other words, we owe it to other people to try as best we can to hold them appropriately in their identities, both in terms of the narratives we tell about them and in terms of our interactions with them. Lindman in this book suggests that only persons can hold other persons in their identities. And of course, nothing I've said here should suggest that generative AI chatbots are persons. That's a whole other issue. <laughs> Maybe I'll do another mini-sode about that. But what I do want to point out is that users of these AI chatbots definitely do interact with them as though they were persons. Users are already leaning on them, depending on them, and using chatbots to hold them in their identities. And I also want to point out that these chatbots can tell us stories that can come to make up our narrative tissue. If we call an AI replica chatbot our girlfriend, that is part of our sense of self. If we rely on one as a best friend or a therapist, that also forms our narrative tissue. The visceral emotions that users of Replica felt in February 2023 tells us that these relationships are real, the emotions are real, and the psychological bonds are real, even if the entities involved in are artificial. And 
Often, this is users who are lonely, already vulnerable, and already in desperate need of being held. So, I don't know, I feel like we need to get this figured out. We need to figure out this personified generative AI thing. We better figure out now what the moral duties providers of these tools have in order to hold us in our identities. Because it's already happening. Like, everywhere. In short, we are being encouraged to place our narrative tissue in the hands of generative AI at points when we are most shaken, when we are most vulnerable, when we suffer a mental health crisis, are desperately lonely, or are reeling from the grief of a lost loved one. Should we, or can we, trust these tools and the companies that design them and implement them to weave our narrative tissue without shredding it? This episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech is my attempt to begin a conversation I've actually wanted to have for several months now, basically ever since ChatGPT3 exploded on the main stage in late 2022. I want to thank the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival for providing me a space to organize and share the thoughts I've been having about generative AI. And thank you, listener, for joining me for another episode of Gender, Sex, and Tech, continuing the conversation. If you would like to continue this conversation further, please reach out on Twitter at tech underscore gender, or you can leave a comment on this podcast, or maybe you could consider creating your own material to continue the conversation in your own voice. Gender, Sex, and Tech is part of the Harbinger Media Network. Music provided by Epidemic Sound. This podcast is created by me, Jennifer Jell Fellows, with support from the Mark Sanders Foundation for Public Philosophy. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know because it is a bit of a different format and consider buying me a coffee. You can find a link to my Kofi page in the show notes. Until next time, everybody. Bye.